HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Italy, the Italian marketplace where you can eat, shop, and learn all things Italian food and drinks. For more information, visit Italy.com. This is Sherry Bayer from All in the Industry. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly culinary journey. And, you know, a lot of, there are a lot of culinary travel books out there. Um, people wanting to know where should they go and eat? What should they buy? What is the food like uh, culture in culinary travel books? But there is now one out that's unlike any that you've seen. Journalist and intrepid traveler Shane Mitchell has traveled the world on assignment for food and travel publications such as Travel and Leisure and Severe, often with photographer James Fisher. And along the way, she's encountered the fascinating people who are keeping some of the world's oldest food traditions alive, such as taro farmers in Hawaii who've never left the islands, or Maasai warriors in Kenya and Icelandic shepherds who still use the techniques that they're vi- of their Viking ancestors. And for Shane, even being thrown off a horse, <laughs> all of this travel, and then some, has culminated in the form of an incredible new book titled Far Afield, Rare Food Encounters from Around the World. And she's here today to share several of these unique and captivating stories and talks about the experiences of learning about their lives. Shane is a uh, contributing editor for Savur and formerly was the Travel and Leisure Special Correspondent. Her writings also appeared in Australian Gourmet Traveler, Afar, Bon Appetit, Departures, Bitter Southern, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Everyone you can think of, I think. And she is a James Beard Foundation Award finalist and received the IACP Culinary Writing Prize. Welcome, Shane. Hi, Linda. You wrote that each of these profiles in this gorgeous book, I have to say this is a gorgeous book for anyone, even if it's not up your alley, it would make a phenomenal gift now that we're entering into that holiday season. But as far as... as as learning about culinary traditions and food ways. It's a spectacular book. Um, But you wrote yourself that each profile represents a distinct tradition or practice not often witnessed by outsiders. 
and many of them are ancient. And an intrepid indeed, what possessed you to go into some of these areas, very remote areas, I have to say? Well, um, first of all, I want to make clear I didn't fall off the horse. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I had to jump off. Um, and that was sheep herding in Iceland, a, there's right? There's a clear <laughs> distinction between the two. That's true. Yeah. Um, but uh, for me... Everything I write about centers on culture and understanding culture. And for me, quite often, food is a soft entry point to culture. Uh, we all have to eat, uh, but we also, uh, food has much more texture than that. It can represent ceremony, it can be sacred, it's the way we celebrate. It's it's something that needs to be shared. There's an understanding about welcome and hospitality to food. So essentially, that's that's the driver to most of my stories. Um, but I have a deep love of learning about the world, and the farther out in the world I can get, the more exciting it is for me. Well, you did go out there, I must say. And I couldn't agree more. I think that that's really through anthropology and culture food is the way we do get to know cultures very in the in the first introduction and so much you can learn from that um let's talk about some of the places that you've been i said fall horse. i know you were sheep herding in iceland by on yes. horse um mm-hmm. and that must have been some rocky territory it, it was we were in the highlands of iceland up near one of the glaciers and in the fall in Iceland, which is about, it falls around the vernal equinox. No, excuse me, autumnal equinox. That's when the Icelandic go out in the field to gather the sheep back to the barns uh, for the winter, which is extensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a, a tradition that they practice since the Vikings landed on the island. Uh, although now, the way they do it, they still ride out on horseback and they still hike on foot. But now we have rubber boots, we have GPS, we have cell phones, um, day glow vests, so you can be seen in the pouring rain. But they're still gathering the sheep in pretty much the same way that uh, they did back in the 800s. Hmm. And how long do they stay out? Do they do they camp out when they go out for you know mm-hmm. this herding? Because they have to go into all these weird rocky crevices and places where the sheep have yeah the sheep taken go all home. the way up to the glaciers sometimes and sometimes into the glaciers, which mm. is really dangerous. But they they wander free all over the island. So there are there are farmsteads down by the ocean as well, and out on some of the the other smaller islands in the archipelago. I've seen sheep way up on peaks you'd never imagine getting to. But essentially, um, it's 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 a long process. It's, it usually takes about three weeks to gather them all in because there's more sheep in Iceland than people, um, hmm. and, and they break it up into weekends because it's also sort of a celebration as well. So everyone gets together, bunks in. In in the case of uh, the farmer I know, Sindri Segergason, they have a bunkhouse up in north of Reykjavik. And everyone bunks in in communal bunks, eats together, then gets on their horse and rides out to find these the herd, yeah. the flock rather. Um, and I happen to know a little bit about some of your connections there because I was going to ask you. Um, you know, you've been to uh, 
East Africa and um, Hawaii and um, the list goes on. Uruguay. Yeah, Uruguay. Buy the book. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, please. But uh, my question to you is really... um, you have so you have connections in a lot of these places. Some of the some connections in these places, mm-hmm. um, whether you've met them through some of your assignments, writing for you know magazines and journals. But you've made friends and you have some connections. Yes. But what possessed you to go far out? You said that's you just you love finding these things out. Did these connections you know hook you up with pe- with places and and people where you could kind of get in touch with? some old original type of, of food traditions? There aren't many tour guides for this kind of thing. No. Um, I really do love the fringe of the world. I've been to the great cities. I've been to the resort destinations that used to be my job. But I kind of took a detour when I was on an assignment in Australia about it nine years ago now. And we were in the top end, what's called the top end, which is the Northern Territory, really remote place. Uh, But the culture up there dates back 50,000 years. That's Mm. the Aborigine culture. And um, for me, I just, it's, it's, it's just essentially asking one person who leads to another person who might have a friend, who might know somebody, um, there's always an entry point, but but a lot of it is just just putting that request out into the universe, and, and sometimes it comes back. Hmm. Uh, we would be, I would be remiss if I did not mention um, the photographer involved yes. in this book, James Fisher, and he is Australian, is he not? James is Australian. Yeah. He grew up on a station in the outback, a sheep station. Hmm. But he's a very fine photographer and um, a great collaborator. And he and I work very much hand-in-hand on these projects. And we discuss who we're looking for. We discuss the kind of story we want. And he tends to go off. What I like about that kind of work relationship is uh, I don't have to worry. I trust him implicitly to get those images... The, you can look in the book and see how extraordinary his portraiture is. Um, and he trusts me to find that person to shoot. Hmm. So it's it's very sympathetic. Yeah. Well, in, on my initial introduction to the book, I looked through and I said, oh, well, this is a gorgeous uh, book of photography. It's a, it, And, you know, so I was thinking, oh, James Fisher, the photographer. But then I, of course, knowing your name from some of the journals, um, I started reading it, and as I mentioned to you before the, the show started, I became so captivated in the stories and the people and, and the traditions that in, in although it looks like these, and these are huge full-page and double-page spread photographs, but read the print between the photos because that's where you learn so much about these people. Um, and, and we will talk about food because <laughs> there is a lot of food in it too. How did you manage to insert yourself into some of these people's lives. I mean, these are people who I'm sure don't often have visitors, particularly outsiders like you. Well, it it takes a lot of time and patience and coming to a place with intention, um, making sure people know that you're there for a purpose. 
Um, but also sometimes it's just luck of the draw. You know, out of the corner of your eye, you see someone on the street, and suddenly that's someone you really have to spend time with. And I just tend to um, treat people with respect, and they hopefully recognize that. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if I don't speak the language, there there are ways in. Sure. Um, the Maasai story is a, a good one like yeah. that. You, can you share something? Because that's, I wanted to go there for other reasons too, but okay. that was, that was um, culturally and, um, and just, I don't know, uh, distance-wise, a very, a very intriguing story. Well, it, it, was, it was a real detour because what we were supposed to be doing was documenting Swahili culture in Mombasa, and we had a few extra weeks, and I said, well, let's go, let's go on safari. And the real meaning of safari has nothing to do with jeeps and funny hats and guns and looking at animals. Safari means to walk. And I said, let's go explore a little bit. And so we did. We uh, detoured to the Loita Hills, which is a remote part of the Mara, uh, which is in southern Kenya on the border of northern Tanzania. And we were with an interpreter and uh, a man who who's a pilot. He flew us there. And so we heard through the grapevine that these Maasai Moran, Moran means warrior in Ma, which is the language, mm. we're in the vicinity. And so we said, hey, do you think there's an opportunity here for us to, to spend a little time with them? Um, and so our, our interpreter, who is also Maasai, said, let's go have a talk. They're, they're in the next village. So we drove to the village, and um, essentially I was told to stay in the car as the men went to talk to the village elders to see if we could interact. And the interpreter said, don't engage, these are very dangerous people. These boys are at a time of their life where they're very aggressive, and you know their whole job at this time of life is to guard cattle, dress up, and flirt with girls. Hmm. Um, and I said, okay, fine, I'll sit in the car. Um, and I'm sitting in the car, and all the men are off, hanging out by the huts. And out of the corner of my eye, I notice a head pops up in the car window, and it's one of the one of the Moran. And all of a sudden, two heads pop up, four heads pop up, eight heads pop up, and they're all looking in the window at me. And I'm looking, and I go, "Hi, guys." <laughs> and they don't speak any English, and I don't speak Ma. But, you know, enough so that we could engage. And they were just as curious about me as I was about them. Sure. Because there aren't many tiny, tiny little pale women with green eyes who show up in their (laughs) territory. And so they were very curious about my fan. I always carry a fan everywhere because I tend to overheat in the tropics. And I was really interested in their clubs. They carry these clubs, which they use not not you know to herd cattle with um and they're beautifully beaded and these guys were such dandies and so essentially without any outside 
conversation, I, I became friends. So when the interpreter finally came back and saw this was going on already, he was shocked. But then he said, I said to him, tell them I want to buy them lunch. And he, he, he nodded and accommodated, and, and they said, yeah, sure, of course. And, and so that's, that's an example of how sometimes it's just serendipity mm-hmm. to, to meet people. Well, now you say you wanted to buy them lunch, and yet you were out with them when they were uh, hurting and, and, uh, and actually uh, harvesting and killing an yeah. animal to cook. So. Well, when I said buy lunch, I, yeah. I bought the sheep from the village that they then slaughtered. Slaughtered and, and cooked yeah. for you. Mm-hmm. That And one of my questions for you was, did you ever have moments of queasiness or a few qualms about eating something that you encountered in these in these ancient traditions and food ways this to me would have been one um, talk about the how the well it's a wonderful theory of course in nothing goes to waste so they slaughter the sheep yes. and then what well they they slaughter the sheep with a lot of grace um, you know Essentially, they're thanking the animal for its life. They have a great deal of respect for their livestock. Uh, livestock is valued more than anything. You know, livestock, both both sheep and cattle, more cattle than than sheep or goats, are considered their treasures. And and so, you know, taking taking the life is actually something that's considered to be honorable. Um, and it's it's all, all about the circle of life. You know, the animal gives its life to provide life for the warriors. But no, um, I'm not squeamish. Uh, I've seen enough abattoirs. I've grown up around farms. Uh, I'm familiar with everything that it takes to put food on the plate. Mm-hmm. So no. But nothing went to waste, and they no. and they made. Did they? Was this this was the group? They made a special broth. At, yes, like, yes. That's that's actually you know it's their chicken soup. Um, it's the way they stay healthy. That broth is full of rich uh, uh, um, innards, and so they boil the intestines. That the broth is they made. boil the intestines, but they also use a type of acacia. Uh, the, their acacia grows all over that um, region in mm-hmm. Africa, and it's full of um, amazing nutrients. I've lived in health studies on the the Maasai diet and the tribal diet in Africa. It's much more healthy than the Western diet. Mm. So, I mean, soon right after they slaughter, they just dump these intestines into the pot and start the broth yes. with the acacia. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's interesting because you mentioned how they. You learned from them that there was there was still the undigested food from the sheep in the in the pasture, yeah, right? yeah, which know. was good. Which was well, they, they didn't they didn't eat that. No, but they but as far as is rendering, um, you know, the healthful qualities to the to mm-hmm. the broth that was there. Interesting, um, and I would imagine on the road for well now uh, well going back this did not happen in one fell swoop. You, this was not one trip, one place after another. This no. was a culmination of what, like nine years? Nine years. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and in many cases, based on years more of relationships, 
Um, for instance, in Hawaii, that story looks like it takes place in a day. That's actually 20 years of mm-hmm. relationships in Hawaii, going back and back and back, meeting friends, becoming part of the community, getting to know people, being invited into their homes. Um, you don't just roll down into Waipio and turn up at this particular taro farm. Now, Wapio is an it's an island or a valley, actually. Wapio is a valley. On what island is it? The big island the of big Hawaii. Island. Yeah. So, is it? It's pretty remote. Very. It's off the grid. There's no electricity. There's no internet. Uh, people are very much back to the land there. Um, it's 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 a really special place. It takes a certain type of commitment to live that lifestyle there. Mm. I was not aware that poi had such history. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, well, the interesting thing is poi is made from taro, the root of taro, mm-hmm. or, or it's called the corm. And taro was introduced to Hawaii by the original Polynesian settlers. When they rode across the Pacific in their outrigger canoes, they brought specific staples, staples with them, um, including pigs and including taro. And taro is part of the Hawaiian origin mythology. It's considered sacred. It's considered the older brother of man. And man is was instructed to take care of the taro, and then the taro would take care of him. Uh, but it's in in all of the South Pacific cultures. It's the only the Hawaiians who pounded into poi. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that and that is, you know, we know that's one of the um, we uh, travelers who, <laughs> who might do some research know that it's one of the indigenous foods that you eat when you're there. But I didn't. Yeah. But it goes back so far, and I didn't realize it's, how you know how well, how a long history it had. It's an acquired taste. Uh, it took me years to really understand that it was actually pretty tasty because mm-hmm. it looks like purple purple goo. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but 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 when you pair it with the right kind of foods that Hawaiians love to have when they're either you know, at a backyard barbecue or, or a formal luau, um, it, it makes sense because it's tangy. It tastes like yogurt. Uh, there's even variations of flavor. Like day-old poi tastes different from three-day-old poi, what they call one-finger poi or three-finger poi. Hmm. Um, and that's how you eat it is you scoop it out with your fingers and then you eat, eat something, you know, like some barbecued pork and then the poi, and it's that tanginess and the sweetness of the pork. It's really lovely. That's wonderful. Um, the places I just, I mean, the, the pictures are all floating in my head of, of the mm-hmm. places that um, you write about. And you, I mean, you really did pretty much cover the world, but you did say, with exception of Southeast Asia, no apologies needed. I mean, it was just... You didn't do Southeast Asia in this. Well, I, I wasn't it. trying to be geographically right. inclusive. And, you know, after nine years of running around the world, I, I was a little disappointed that maybe I couldn't smash every culture into this book. But it, it instead, I spent more time with the people that I did profile. Yeah. And so it, it's not really about geography as much as it is celebrating the people. Yeah, and it does. Places. It comes across. It really you you manage to to relate mm-hmm. that very nicely, and it, it come you get into them, and you also 
do share and relate something about that that importance of the history mm-hmm. in, in their culture. Um, and in Uruguay, I think people just say, oh, well, it's barbecue. It's just, you know, it's uh-huh. just meat on the grill. And But, I mean, it goes it, so much further than that. And it's just... Oh, yes. Talk well, about, you, had, you had some good times there. Gotchas. Muy guapo. I was interested in, in the culture of gaucho because these are men who... They eat meat, they um, look after their cattle, and they play with knives. <laughs> and anyone in the food world loves knives. I collect knives. So they, they, were, they were a very attractive story to tell. Um, yes, but there's, there's far more to that culture than just barbecue. It's, it's, it's such an incredible place. It's a very unusual spot for um, South America. Mm-hmm. It's a very small country buffered by two huge countries. So there's a sort of um, socio-political tension there that doesn't exist anywhere else. Uh, so that's that's why I was drawn to Uruguay. Yeah. Uh, in, in some of these countries, some yes, like East Africa, you, you expect that one would find um, cultures that had not really changed... A lot you know, mm-hmm. over the years, but yet places like Uruguay or or Japan, you know, think well, they're all part of the modern world. So that indeed, you have to go a little further afar afield to find um, to find something that's that retains some of that old culture. Mm-hmm. And in Japan, tell us about what you what you found in Japan. Oh, in Japan, well, it's it's interesting because for me. Uh, some people think, oh, well, Japan's throwaway. That's not that far or, you know, it's so modern. Everyone knows about Japan. Everyone knows right. about Japan. Well, no, that's not true. Westerners really don't understand Japan. It takes years to understand Japan. Their culture is so complex and it's just such a, such a very different sense of the world than ours. Um, I'm just fortunate because my one of my aunts is Japanese, so I grew up with little, little you know lessons in in Japan, um, and I also studied Japan in school. But I it took years for me to really start to absorb what the literature was, what the films were, what the food was, what the culture was, what the religion is. Um, and so for me, the chapter about Japan, which takes place in Kyoto, which is in a stunning, stunning city, mm. and it's one of the few places in the book that does take place in a city. The interesting thing is um, Kyoto is uh, full of temples, Shinto temples and Buddhist temples, but this shrine is the oldest shrine in Kyoto. And the aspect that I wanted to cover was the sacred aspect of rice. Why the Japanese think rice is so special. And why they treat it so as, uh, with Reverend, such reverence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so essentially what you're doing is you're walking through the temple grounds and I was with uh, more than one priest but it was Inui who I found a special relationship to because he had come here after 9-11 and performed blessings 
and, and that's just something he was compelled to do. When Japan had their own version of 9-11, uh, which is called 311 oh. over there, the Fukushima power plant accident, uh, the Shinto priests at this temple have been praying for nature to come back into balance. And, and that's, what, that's what Shinto the Shinto practice is. It celebrates balance. nature. Yeah. But the interesting thing is, is what you do is you leave the modern world by walking through this temple and you cross over a bridge where a stream is running through and you enter another world completely. Mm. It's the sacred boundaries. And so you really are going far to cross over that little stream. And, and that's what was so special to me about being able to document that aspect of Japanese food mm-hmm. culture. I can imagine this uh, this sort of curtain of calm coming over one, uh, well, inquisitiveness and calm mm-hmm. at the same time, if, that, if those two can coexist. Oh, sure. Uh, when, you, when you enter and, and, and spend time in, in one of these temples. Oh, yes. Um, it, it's, it's, you really are walking away from the modern world. Um, there's such an extraordinary sense of sanctuary um, and reverence. Uh, but also, the interesting thing about this shrine, which is called Kamigamo, is that the um, spirit that they celebrate is a favorite of farmers. He, the, this particular spirit, is is one that they offer food to to ask for a bountiful harvest. So that also tied into the theme of the book. Lovely. That's very nice. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to talk more about some of these wonderful old food traditions and far afield when we come back after a short break. Buongiorno amici dell'Italia, got all that if not come to Italy, the only place you can eat, shop, learn everything Italian food and drink. Come inside to eat at one of the many restaurants such as Italy Seafood, Vegetable or Pizza and Pasta Restaurant. We also have a quick and delicious panini you can take to go. Then you can shop around the grocery and retail market for fresh pasta, house-made bread and high-quality cheeses from Italy and the U.S. Italy is also a place to learn. As a student in La Scuola di Italy, you can learn about making fresh pasta, Italian dessert, pairing wine and cheese and more. And you must try Italy's homemade gelato. So what are you waiting for? Visit us in New York City or Chicago, soon in Boston and Los Angeles or Italy.com. Ciao amici! Hi, and we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm talking to, uh, speaking with um, Shane Mitchell, and her new book is Far Afield, Rare Food Encounters from Around the World. 
It's really, um, and I think it was a quote I found from James Fisher, the photographer of the book. Mm -hmm. He said, um, somebody had asked him, well, what's the book going to be like? Well, kind of something like a cultural documentary combined with regional cuisines. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that pretty much sums it up. I mean, you know, in one way, it, it really describes it, and it's a lot more than that, but it has a nice ring to it, mm-hmm. so people know what they're getting into. What I was, um, I mean, there are so many stories, so many more stories of places you've been and, and, and that you wrote about. Um, one thing I was surprised at was that there actually are a couple of recipes in the book. That mm-hmm. <laughs> why recipe? You know, well, it's it's interesting because. For me in particular, um, where was it? Oh, um, I was thinking, well, I don't want to make, you know, the sheep intestine broth. I mean, that's, you know, and there is no recipe no, for that. No, there's no recipe um, for that. Or in Iceland, you know, um, Nordic cuisine. Well, Iceland being part of yeah, there's so much, you know, about the food of the north. Um, but there were, you have included something that was a little bit, not really far afield, um, but oh, something a little different, and that I thought of. Oh no, that was no, that's Hawaii. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. lomi lomi salmon. Yeah, that I thought I that's something I would actually then go and make and sure. and do. So that was a nice a nice recipe to include. Um, Peru. I don't want to give away everything, but Peru was a wonderful story as well. There Thank was you. some there was some wonderful. Um, uh, discussions about food and the the naturally freeze-dried potatoes well you only get those at sixteen thousand feet yeah, so well. <laughs> <laughs> but those sound that that intrigued me that yeah, really they, did they, they are um the thing about the recipes in the book is they are representative of the journey as much as the stories and if you you really have to read the headnotes to understand some of the stories of the, of why these particular recipes are in the book, uh, you can look at certain chapters and say, "Oh well, that's familiar. I know how to make black beans because it's in the Mexico chapter." But you really have to look a little closer because it has to do with what black beans are used for during the time of the narrative because that chapter is about Day of the Dead and during Day of the Dead you eat specific things and you put specific things on a table uh, that's called an, an altar, an altar. Yeah. or a, an ofrenda in, in, in the vernacular and black beans have to be on that altar it's, it's as important as the incense and the marigolds and the sugar skulls and so if you just say, oh, well, you know, she just put a recipe for black beans in the book. I'm like, uh-uh. No. I mean, there, are, there aren't that many. There are just a few recipes scattered. And you're mm-hmm. right. You, you have to you read it and keep those in context of the whole story because that it, it really does make a difference. And often um, what I got from a couple of them were dishes that were being served to you, yes. the outsider, not necessarily uh, you know when you went out to pull the tarot from the fields and whatever. These were other dishes that were offered to you um, to eat because you were spent time there. Yes, and and you mentioned it at the top of the show, hospitality. How that how important hospitality is in many of these cultures. Were you did you find a culture that that 
where that did not, well, you wouldn't have been invited in, but it did not exist. Uh, Hospitality is a universal. It's just the way it's interpreted from place to place. And, you know, the reception can be warmer in some places than others. But if you you come with respect uh, and you're welcomed in, you need to appreciate that because that's that's the key aspect of sharing um we share a planet we share a planet we're all on this rock and i i feel especially right now that understanding that and getting to know your neighbor is a really important message and that's what i feel that this book does is teaches you various aspects of hospitality um there's one chapter in particular where that comes out uh, as a very strong aspect, which I'm sure you're going to ask me about. Yes. Well, no, go ahead. Tell me. Go ahead and uh, lead into it. <laughs> you piqued our interest. Okay. okay. That, that comes out most powerfully and most compellingly in the chapter about refugees. Well, that's uh, that. Yes, indeed. I was going to sort of use that as a wrap up, and I yeah, think it's appropriate to go there. That. Yeah, mm-hmm. and because I was surprised, and I was just you know reading it very care- the book very carefully, and I saw France. Mm-hmm. What's so far afield about France? Now you will tell us. It's a it's a tell us where it is and what it is. Okay. Well, um, let's just put it this way. Yes, France. Why is France far afield? What we're addressing in that chapter is the current diaspora of of peoples. Um, there, we are in a period of great migration, and it's not a positive migration. It's people who are being compelled to leave their homelands because of injustice, or war, or conscription, or prostitution. I mean, it's dire. You know, most people don't want to leave their home. These are people who have had to or want to get away from what's going on at home. And we're buffered from that here in the U.S. Um, Europe is on the front lines at the moment of that, uh, although that conversation is has come <laughs> to our shores. Yes, it has. And we should go into that more, too. But essentially, my feeling was um, that the people we encountered in this refugee camp, which is in Calais, it's called the Jungle, uh, it was very recently shut down, are people who are far afield. They're the people who are far from home. And I want to give James Fisher credit for suggesting that project because he's very much involved in the refugee crisis in Europe, he mm. works for an organization called Cal Aid, um, which is set up aid in that camp, but is also in Greece, uh, where a lot of refugees are coming across the Mediterranean mm-hmm. right now. And he called and said, "You've got to come here, get on a plane. You've got to see what's going on here." And I said, "Okay, I'm on." And uh, we walked into the camp and met a remarkable cross-section of cultures in a very small place. Uh, Etrians, Sudanese, Iraqis, Iranis, Afghanis, Pakistanis, all living cheek by jowl in, in really difficult 
conditions, not just weather, but living in tents um, and little shacks that they kind of threw together with scrap wood. Um, and yet, the, the, the important thing for me, there were two things that were important. Um, the first was to find out what it was that these people took when they left home. Um, and probably the easiest thing to carry away from home is your memories. Mm-hmm. And most specifically, food is one of our strongest memories. So even though they're far from home, I wanted to know what it was they missed eating from home, what it was they were cooking in the camps that reminded them of home. Um, So I was on a mission to find out about that. But the thing that surprised me the most was the gracious welcome. By and large, people who had nothing, nothing, uh, invited me in to their tents, to their sheds, to their little restaurants, to their little stores, and offered me a cup of tea, offered me a, a fresh piece of bread that had just been baked, um, offered me a place to sit next to men who were charging their cell phones and smoking cigarettes and waiting Looking for, their for their a way out for their next yes, the rest of their life. waiting for their yeah. chance. Yeah. It was it. It was it. Once a, a very dark story. I mean, you th- you, it's called it was called the jungle, mm-hmm. and for good reason. I mean, it was you know these these makeshift ways of living, and yet at the same time extremely warm because you talked about the sharing and and how the Sudanese couple of Sudanese guys w- said we want to cook for you. The pride that they felt in in sharing their Yes, their recipes, their yes. home, their their what they retain. We went to a we went to a suburban mall and and went to a huge supermarket, <laughs> a bulk store, the, the equivalent of like a Costco uh, or something. Costco, right? <laughs> French Costco, and and the two of us were wandering around the store. The, the, Hamada, the Sudanese man, is like six three and bone thin, and I'm maybe five on a good day, five <laughs> feet on a good day. And uh, we were just wandering through the store, and we both were lost in the supermarket. It was blowing our minds, looking at all this food and all this bounty. Um, and we, we I bought some groceries, and we went back to the camp. And they cooked up special dishes that, that they like to cook when they're having a celebration. Mm. Um, and some of those recipes are in the book, but it was just—it was just the, they take a sense of pride uh, in in welcoming people, but they also say that it's it's duty, it's duty um, to welcome people. And I think the most important thing for me, not just about that chapter, but about the whole book, is you get a sense of community, and. The aspect of hospitality ties into community as well. Um, it, 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 it draws you in. Mm-hmm. It embraces you. And once you become a part of a community, there's no going back. They've well, I think it also um, illustrated and, and addressed um, Something very important about immigrant communities all over the place. You know, here in the New York Times, just did a spread on Thanksgiving about immigrant oh, communities. Lovely. Yeah, and 
about holding on to tradition, about holding on to something meaningful mm-hmm. that is part of your culture or was part of your heritage. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, food is a is a memory. Food memories are are very poignant. And well, and, it also uh, those traditions add to ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's what I, we are. Who I, we are? Yes, <laughs> it absolutely is. There's there every one of us uh, have has a family member who's come from somewhere else. Right. And uh, that's an important thing to remember right now. I, I will say, too, one of my favorite things to do um, just before Thanksgiving is uh, whether I'm traveling or whether I'm sitting next to somebody on the subway or next to someone on an airplane, I turn to them and just out of the blue say, Hi, what's the thing you have to have on your table to make it Thanksgiving? What's the dish that's important to your family? And I've asked that question for years, and the answers are pretty wonderful. Um, it's always something. Um, what's yours? Ah, for me, it was, I guess I have to say it's changed so much and evolved over the mm-hmm. years, but still that there has to be <laughs> potatoes, mashed potatoes. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And, and they've changed form many times. But, yes, my mother being Polish, potatoes are very, you know, very important in their diet. And oh, sure. Well, for, for me, uh, my family's Southern, so we don't have potatoes. We have rice. Mm-hmm. We have rice on the table. And without the rice, it's, it's just no good. Yeah. It's not Thanksgiving. But we don't only have mashed potatoes we have potatoes and sweet potatoes we okay have both yes. potatoes and we have sweet potatoes too yeah. but but the answer my favorite answer to that question happened last year i was running through an airport and somebody was in the line behind me you know to, to check their tsa and i turned to her and just said what's the most important ingredient for thanksgiving for you and she looked at me and grinned, and she said, me, I'm the most important yeah. ingredient. I'm cooking the dinner. <laughs> That's a pretty good answer. Yeah, I, I like said, that. you win yeah. Thanksgiving. Yeah. Well, these these uh, stories, and certainly the photographs as well, are are just wonderful. But how important it is to, to remember these foodways. For many of these people, carrying on this tradition of their gathering, their hunting, whatever it is that you discovered along the way, it, I mean, it, it's it's going to pass down through many generations mm-hmm. in, as you say, what they put on the table and what's important to them. Well, this is daily life. I mm-hmm. mean, they're not they're not walking around with clipboards documenting their their traditions. This is just what they do every day, um, and. There, there's 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 not always gravitas about that, but I, I think there's often resentment too. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. yeah. You know, why do I still have to do it? This? Right, right. But but um, and some some of those traditions are disappearing um, in in Africa specifically mm. with the Maasai. Mm. The the tradition that I I wrote about is is very likely going to fade in the next couple generations. But I, I think that that's, that's an important message, is to celebrate these ways of life. Um, yeah. It's like, well, in the South, when you say you're, you're Southern, I mean, there was the, um, you know, the pig slaughter was a, a communal event. Oh, killing time. Yeah. Killing yeah. time. Edna Lewis is wonderful. Yes. Chapter absolutely. on killing time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's things that we have to learn about and, or at least... 
um, respect when we do read about it and yes, hear about absolutely. it. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me today Linda, and, and thank sharing you for this. Having me. And um, again, Shane Mitchell's book is Far Afield Stories. Uh, rare food encounters from around the world. They are stories, indeed, but they're rare yes. food encounters from around the world. Keeping and they are stories about keeping food traditions and ancient food ways alive. and And I recommend it highly. And it was a pleasure speaking. I hope you'll come back and join me again. Oh, thank you so much. I'd like to to say that there's a, a wonderful proverb at the beginning. Of I, I have it written the book. Down. Yeah, I, I think we we should just say that as a okay. farewell. Is, well, how about you? Okay, you read it. Yes, um, if it, it's it's an African proverb. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Excellent. Great. A wonderful way to finish. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. And tune in again to A Taste of the Past here on Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.